Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 8. It's good to be back. I was gone last week and praise God for the word that was preached last week by Will from 1 Corinthians 15 about the very grace that we sang about. I listened to it this week and was so encouraged about God's, not only his saving grace, but his sustaining grace that empowers us to lean into life and live for God. And this morning we're back into Romans chapter 8 as we've been working through the book of Romans for the past year. We're going to settle down on verses 9, 10, and 11. So if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones you can find in the rack in front of you. Open it to Romans 8. Follow along with me. And we'll get started in just a moment. I, I bring you greetings from our, our brothers and sisters in India where I was last week with uh, Pastor Emmanuel and Pastor Koshal. If you remember Pastor Koshal preached here about a year ago. He was visiting us in the United States and he preached just a powerful message and, and told us about life and ministry there in India. And Emmanuel is a brother that was sent out from Koshal's church to plant a church in another city. And so I had the opportunity to catch up with both of those brothers and their families and their congregations and to encourage them and be encouraged by them. And just such a joy to be with them. Christians in India uh, are, well, the world is a dark place. Everywhere, every culture is fallen. But the the oppression of the majority Hindu culture there in India is, is just very evident. It's very stark, all of the false gods. We have false gods here too. I'm not, I'm not saying in any way that American culture is better off. But the, the starkness of the false idols that are present there in India cause the Christians, I think, to, to stand out. They're like, they're, they just pop like a diamond against a, a black velvet cloth. And it's such a joy to be with them, and I'm so encouraged by, by their ministry and by what they're doing. And so when you think about it, pray for Emmanuel and Koshal and the churches there that we have a great privilege to, to be part of. Um, I will say that um, the Lord humbled me in my trip. I um, have traveled a lot in, internationally and, and um, growing up on the Mexican border where you never know sometimes about the water, I've always sort of prided myself on having kind of an iron stomach. And I was boasting to Emmanuel about how I've never gotten sick, and the Lord, the Lord heard my boast. <laughs> and later that night, in the middle of the night, I woke up and spent the next 12 hours in the fetal position in the bathroom. In fact, I thought that the Lord was going to take me. <laughs> on the cold floor of a bathroom in Kalapur, India. And I thought, Lord, if this, is the way it ha- if this is the way I go, praise God. I was kind of hoping to spontaneously combust in my, my early 80s in the pulpit at Crosspoint, but if I die of dehydration right here, well, then so be it. You are the potter, I am the clay. <laughs> but as he brought Lazarus back from the grave, <clears throat> I rose again. There's a fundamental question that all of us are asking and that gnaws at us from the earliest of our years. Am I going to make it? 
will I get through this? Whether it's those awkward middle school years when your face is breaking out and your friends are full of drama, whether it is the early years of young adulthood, wondering about what life holds for you. Maybe you're in the army and you're wondering whether or not you're going to get through basic training or that final phase of ranger school or home from that deployment. Maybe you're a young mother and you're wondering whether or not you're going to make it through another sleepless night with a teething baby who cannot be appeased. Maybe you are struggling with some habitual besetting sin that you think you have it licked and it rears its ugly head again and knocks you off your horse. Maybe life is clipping along and some unforeseen event or tragedy that you were not anticipating absolutely turns your world upside down and everything you thought was true and good and dependable is now shattered. And you are wondering, am I going to make it? That's the fundamental question I think that all of us wrestle with on some level in varying degrees, in varying stages, in different manifestations, in different ways. All of us grapple with this question. Even the strongest among us. Will I make it? And Romans chapter 8 is God's answer to that question for His people. I I think Romans chapter 8, actually, many theologians have noted this, is really a chapter that is about assurance. Paul has been laying out the gospel in the first seven chapters. I won't summarize all of those. We've been doing that for the past year and almost a half. But the point is, is that we are not saved by our own works, by our own merit. There's nothing good in us that makes us right with God. All humanity is fallen and flawed and completely unable. We are born as a result of inheriting the spiritual DNA of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We are all born in this state that the Bible calls in the flesh. We are separated from God, even though we still bear the image of God, it's marred because of the inherited sin that all of us inherit, and we are separated from a God who is holy, and so the dilemma of the book of Romans is how is a holy God going to remain holy and yet allow any of these fleshly sinful people into his presence? How is he going to save them and still remain just is the dilemma. And the answer to that question that Paul has been laying out for us in the first seven chapters of Romans is it is the good news of the gospel that he puts forward God the Father, puts forward God the Son, Jesus, who becomes a man who, unlike us, did not inherit our sin nature, and he lived a perfect life in obedience where we have all disobeyed God, then lays down his life on the cross to bear the wrath of God for us in our place, substituting himself for his people. And on the cross, Jesus extinguishes, he satisfies, he absorbs, he, the biblical term is propitiates the wrath of God, takes it away and turns it into favor for all those that believe and trust in him. And then God... Because he is sovereign and good, knowing that we are dead in our sins, when he intends to save a person, takes their dead heart, makes them alive, and gives them the gift of faith, whereby they can now behold Jesus and trust in him. 
And so God's wrath and his justice is satisfied, but his holiness remains intact because sin has been punished, not in us, but in Jesus. And the righteousness of Christ is now given to those who believe in him. And so we stand before God justified, made right, redeemed, and now we are no longer condemned. <laughs> That's such good news. Oh. And I'm just, I'm just kind of repeating stuff right now. This isn't even. And that's the beginning of Romans chapter 8. But life is still hard. Amen? And Romans chapter 8 is intended to give us assurance. Assurance. So Paul, before this, our text here in verses 9 through 11, has said that there's only two types of people. Those that are in the flesh, who are completely unable to do anything to save themselves. And those who are in the spirit who have been made new by God, and now something is true of them. And let's read what he says in verses 9 through 11. You, however, so he's contrasting this with what he just said before, and what he just said before in verses 5 through 8 is that those that are in the flesh, their mind is hostile to God, they cannot submit to God's law, they are unable. He's speaking about unbelievers. Now he's addressing Christians. Verse 9, you, however, believer, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If, verse 11... The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray briefly and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Lord, these words are enormous. And the implications of just the truth in these few verses is all-encompassing. It touches every area of our existence, our past, our present, and our future. And it's meant by your Holy Spirit to fasten your people to the rock-solid assurance that you will bring your people safely home. Work assurance that leads to boldness, that leads to selflessness, that leads to joy in us. And anybody that's in this room that doesn't yet know Jesus, I pray that he, you, you, by your sovereign grace, would overwhelm their hard hearts, that you would melt them and cause them to pass from death to life as they see Jesus. And I pray it all for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I think that these verses are actually quite simple. I think there are two truths here that I want us to see, and we're just gonna give it to you right up at the front, and then the balance of our message is gonna be looking at some implications, applying these two truths. The two truths that I think are clear from these three verses are this. One is that all Christians are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful word. We don't use it very often, but I think um, most of us know what it means. In, indwelled, there's, that the Spirit of God abides, dwells, lives in us. All Christians are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's truth number one there. And we, we see that. Verse 9, he says that 
you're not of the flesh, but in the spirit, if the spirit of God dwells in you. Meaning if you're a Christian, you're no longer in the flesh, you've passed from death to life. And how did that happen? Because the life-giving Spirit of God came and made you alive. He regenerated your heart and he took up residence in you. And Paul's conclusion in the second half of verse 9 is anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So obviously he's just stating negatively what he just said positively, that the Spirit of God dwells in Christians. That is true for everyone that is a Christian. We're going to look at some beautiful implications of that in just a second. But I want you to see that that's, that's just clearly the point of verse 9. The point then, the second truth that we see in this text is that that indwelling spirit will necessarily result in something. And what is that necessary result? Well, the indwelling spirit will resurrect us and make us like Jesus. So these 80 or 90 years, praise God, is not all that there is to life. There is a future, a heavenly and eternal future that awaits those that are in the Spirit, whereby, and so in a sense, and we're going to get into this, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, our salvation is still in process. We are saved, past tense, we are being saved, that's sanctification, and we will finally be saved. That's glorification. So all those things are certain. But we're in the process of that happening to us. And what he's saying here in verse 11 is that there's coming a day because the Spirit of God dwells in us that we will be raised just like Jesus is raised. So let's look at verse 11 again. It says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that's a certain fact if you're a Christian. We've established that from verse 9. He who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And I think clearly from the context that's pointing forward to a future life that is coming where we will be made like Jesus. So we're going to kind of work through the beautiful implications of that in just a moment. But first, let's look at the first implication from these two truths, from, from, these, from these three verses. The first implication is this. And by implication, I mean these are the things that we need to apply to our lives from this text. The first is this, that there is no class system in Christ. There's no, there's no varsity in junior varsity. Now, I just took four international flights. It takes it's two flights to get to India. I flew from Atlanta to Amsterdam and Amsterdam to Mumbai. And then I, I, remember I, I took that little spice jet, uh, about an hour little flight, which was fun. And it's it, it, safe. I'm actually alive now. Praise God. And then I flew back from Mumbai to Amsterdam and Amsterdam to Atlanta. Four international flights, eight hours. And you really, you really understand the division of, of socioeconomics when you're on an international flight. And those big international flights, first class ain't no joke now. And what they do is they let all of those first class passengers board the plane first, just to kind of rub it in your nose. So all of you plebeians have to walk past all of these people who are 
lounging in their barca loungers that they've somehow put in this plane. They're already bringing them food. The stewardesses are getting mad at you because you're getting in the way of their service and you're just boarding the plane. And you got to walk past these people who are clearly in first class and you're not. <laughs> Lest you were wondering. And sometimes in some Christian cultures, incorrect views about the activity of the Holy Spirit in a person's life leads to this conclusion that there are kind of two stages of Christianity. In fact, I came to faith. I'm very grateful for the stream of Christianity that I, um, that I came to faith in. I think a lot of the vibrancy of that particular stream, that charismatic stream of Christianity, uh, a lot of it's very healthy, but at least in the particular portion that I was, there was, I think, some very, some unbiblical views of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, and there was this kind of tacit sense that, yeah, you get saved, but then there's this kind of sort of ambiguous experience where if you get it, then you're really kind of a varsity Christian. And that's, that's, that's not true. Now, this is not to say that there aren't varying levels of maturity in the Christian life. Clearly, there are. But just like my oldest child, who is more mature, social, and in every, social in every way than my youngest child, it, the oldest is not more of my child and not more loved by me than my youngest child. Listen to what Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, where he talks about the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. 1 Corinthians 12, verse, verse 12 he says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, for in, or by, or through, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul here in Romans chapter 8 verse 9 is telling us that the Spirit dwells in every Christian. And here in Romans chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's telling us that all Christians have been baptized by the same Spirit. We're all one. Now there's no, any, there's no longer any divisions. There's no slave or free. There's no people that have it and those that do not. And mature Christians, certainly there are different levels of maturity but mature Christians and mature congregations should be people, as one implication of this, is it should be people that do not come across as super spiritual. And do not give off an air that their maturity produces in them a kind of first class status. That's death to the gospel culture of a church. I don't think it exists here, praise God. But one of the reasons it doesn't exist here is because we just humble ourselves by the preaching of God's word. Maturity in the life of a believer should produce warmth and humility, not an air of superiority or religiosity. And here I think we see that there is no class. Do you see that? Listen to me. That means that if you are a weak and wounded, struggling Christian, you are as loved and you are as indwelt by the Holy Spirit as the person that has been studying the Bible and leading Bible studies and preaching sermons for decades. That's a glorious thought. That should fortify you. 
Implication number two that comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit in all believers is that we are eternally secure in Christ. I think this means that a true Christian, a true born-again believer, cannot lose their salvation because their salvation wasn't theirs to lose in the first place. Let me read to you about the Holy Spirit's role in this very thing from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul's writing and he says, In him we have obtained, in him, meaning in Christ, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So <laughs> what that text is saying is, is that just, just think in terms of real estate. If you're going to purchase a piece of property, you put down a, a down payment, earnest money on that. And what Paul is saying here, and you do that to secure, to tell the person that you are transacting this real estate deal with that my money's good, there's more coming, I'm going to buy this. And that's the picture here, is that the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer is meant to be God's pledge, his down payment, his earnest money, whereby God is saying that this one is mine, I've purchased it, and I will not default on my down payment. That's the picture. God is saying, I'm good for what I'm going to do in this person's life. So in a sense, here's, here's another picture of the, the tension of our salvation. We are saved, but we still struggle with sin. He's bought us, but he hasn't fully renovated us yet. So he's, he's purchased us, he's moved in, and over the course of time... He is renovating us and he is promising that the work will be done. And, and, and Jesus doesn't flip any houses. He doesn't beautify them so he can sell them. He says, that's mine. John chapter 10, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Now, we, we shouldn't misunderstand this because this this truth, this clear biblical truth, this clear gospel truth of the eternal security of true Christians, when misunderstood, produces in people a kind of once saved, always saved, cheap grace living, and that is exactly the opposite of what it's intended to produce. We can't say that just because we raised our hand or we have some cognitive acknowledgement of the God of the Bible, that we are okay with him and we can continue to live however we want. No, the necessary process of renovation must be true in our lives. It, we can be deceived. 
That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, he says that there will be people on that day who say to me, Lord, are we not yours? Did we do all these things in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. The point of that parable is Jesus is saying that there are people who think that they are right with God, but they're not. And it's not that they lost their salvation, it's that they never truly had it. For a variety of reasons, and we don't have time to go into that. Much of it is because it's a weak church culture in America that is driven by the idolatrous egos of pastors who just want more people to come to their church so they don't preach the true gospel and they just tell people what they want to hear and they give people false assurance by telling them that they're right with God merely because they attend. Instead of doing the hard work of preaching the gospel and sitting down with people and asking them, do you understand these things? And if you turn from life to death, and is this true in your life? Friends, do you see the balance here? This is a challenge, and of course Christians are still going to struggle with sin. And I, think, I actually think it's probably healthy for all Christians at some point to really ask themselves, am I, like, my, man, my, am, I, am I really, like, is, is God really made me new? As we struggle with sin, that's not to produce doubt in us, but it's meant to kind of see this tension in the Christian life that we're secure and God has made us his own and we must fight to make this realize more and more in our lives. We are eternally secure in Christ. And, and, and without even that doctrinal, clear doctrinal statement, of Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8, just, let, just consider the process of salvation. Let me, let me read to you the process of salvation as, as, as Peter writes about it in 1 Peter chapter 1. And let me just read this and then just consider the security of salvation and how it works. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's not because of anything that you do, but he caused you to be born again. That means you were dead, and he brought you back to life. So just think about how salvation works. It's not like we're free agents and we decide to follow Jesus. We are dead in our sins, enslaved, unable to do anything. Remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God. But because of his mercy, when God saves a person, he causes them to be born again. In other words, he makes them alive, as Ephesians 2 says. And how does he do it? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, the penalty that was ours that killed us, Jesus atones for it, removes it, satisfies it, and turns it into favor. So God takes dead hearts, makes them alive, and doesn't just cancel their guilt and act like it didn't happen. He pours out the punishment for our guilt on Jesus who died and rose again and defeated death in the grave. And then he applies it to us. And then where does he send us after that has happened to us? Verse 4, to an inheritance. And listen to how he describes salvation. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. Nobody strips the ball from God. Think about that. 
You're, God is holding, he, he saved you, and he's put you, he's keeping you in heaven by the Holy Spirit, and he promises to cross the goal line, and ain't nobody stripping the ball from Jesus. That's better than you guys are making on. And he doesn't say it's going to be all peachy cream until then. Look what he says in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. In other words, I don't have time to get into this. We're going to get into this later in Romans 8. But trials are necessary. They have purposes in the triune God's plan for our life. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are kept in the arms of a triune God. Amen. <laughs> Guarded by the Holy Spirit. Your salvation was planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied by the Spirit, and held fast by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working together. <laughs> and that should produce in us a longing to live for Him, not a laziness to stay in sin. And that's what Romans 6 was all about, but I don't want to go back through that again. And neither do you. <laughs> Implication number three. If the Spirit of God dwells in us, then we belong to Jesus, not ourselves. Look at the, look at the second half of verse nine. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Clearly, then the implication is that if you do have the Spirit of Christ, you belong to Him. We are, I mean, Paul, Paul in his, the beginning of his letters, he often refers to himself as a servant, as a slave. That, that, that's the picture of the Christian. We, we do not exist for ourselves. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. And let's, let's look at what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians. Let's kind of piece this together in, in the theology of the, the New Testament here about the Christian life and whose we are. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, Or do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So again, we see that truth about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So clearly, there's a theology that ties together with what he's implying in verse 9 of Romans 8, is that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, not, not just to be a, a, a little helper that suggests, so maybe the, but as our owner. We are owned by God. And in order for us to understand the context of verses 19 and 20 of 1 Corinthians 6 that I just read, we need, we need to go back up to the beginning of that paragraph. In fact, let me do that. Go up to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 
And maybe in your Bible there, the phrase, all things are lawful for me is a quotation. What he's doing is he's taking a cultural slogan in Corinth and he's not necessarily endorsing everything that it's representing to the Corinthians, but he's saying, okay, this is what you guys believe, but you have to understand not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. So a Christian can't quote that portion of Scripture and just say, all things are lawful for me. That's not the intent of the Scripture. Do you understand that? So all things are lawful for me, but, but Paul says, but wait a minute, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for God, and God will destroy both the one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Listen to verse 15. Look at Paul's logic about how the ownership of God should affect what we do with our lives. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And the context here is that Paul was dealing with a Corinthian church that was very carnal. And one of the things that the Corinthian Christians were doing is they were, they were, they were caught up in this false belief that Christianity is all about the spirit and it has nothing to do with the body and the flesh. And so they were just saying, well, we can do whatever we want. Our spirit's right with God. And so I can just kind of do whatever I want with my body in this particular instance sexually. And apparently these Corinthian Christians were, were, were frequenting temple prostitutes in these pagan temples. And Paul is saying, no. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then what we read, verses 19 and 20, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I know these are hard verses, but this is so important for our sanctification. This is how this text and this truth about the indwelling Holy Spirit is not just meant to encourage us in assurance, but it's meant to convict us into sanctification and holy living because we can't just take from this text that, oh, I'm secure in Christ. We also have to apply it. Well, wait, and also, I belong to Jesus. And now, because he's in me and I'm in him, where I go and what I do, this is Paul's logic, I'm taking Jesus with me. And so if I'm willfully giving myself to this type of activity, I am joining Christ to these things. That's what Paul is saying here. And he writes this to encourage us to holiness so that we don't do these things. Do you see this? That, now that gets less amens than the eternally secure thing. I understand, I understand why. I get it. I get it. But it's really, really important. I mean, it's important to a young guy in here that's battling with lust. And the, the, this, this, this truth isn't meant to be a bat that beats you over the head with condemnation. It's meant to be something that fuels you, that, that, that beckons you to true joy in Christ rather than giving yourself over to these things that, that, 
that you're not intended to do because you're not your own. Do you see that? It's, it's, it's important. Implication number four. We are part of a body, which is the church. He, he, the Holy Spirit doesn't just descend on a Christian and dwell in them individually so that they can remain as kind of isolated pods. What's happening here is there is a joining together, a joining, a, a grafting of the individual Christian. And make no mistake, we are individually born again. We must, you must personally trust in Jesus. Nobody makes it to heaven. Nobody is right with God because of the faith of their family or their they're friends, you must, you must individually, but when we are individually renewed, regenerated, he puts us together with a, a body called the church, and that church is expressed in the local church. So look, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 24. Through him we both have access, I'm sorry, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So do you see this language of dwelling of God is now plural? It's not intended to be an individual thing. This individual action of the Spirit's work in a person's life through their regeneration, making them alive, and then indwelling them, then necessarily ends up in verse 22, where he says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But oh, how American Christians are so anemic in our understanding of this often, right? Church is not for us. It's for us together to collectively come to, together as a localized family, as a local expression of the global body of Christ, whereby we become a corporate dwelling place of God, whereby He tabernacles with his people so that he can display his glory to other people so that they will come and be part of that family as well. So this, I just think this has clear implications about our church life. It means that gathering with the local church is an absolute priority in the life of a Christian. Regardless of whether you feel like it or whether or not the sermon is inspiring or the music songs are to your preference, there's something greater going on. There is the redemptive plan of God whereby he saves an individual, puts his spirit in them, joins it together with a family, and that place becomes a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And how does he do that? Is it just we gather together as some sort of lifeless being saying, Om, Om, Jesus is in us now. The Spirit of God dwells in us. No, it's through the practical way that we live together, prefer one another, love one another, exhort one another, bear with one another, serve with one another, that God descends on a place and the Spirit of God dwells amongst the people and it has an aroma that God uses to draw those in the world that he is intending to save. And so you serve in children's ministry when you really don't want to. 
And, you, you know, every week or two you sit in a living room with people that are awkward. And you, you just show up a little early and you leave a little late. Because, because there's nothing more important than, it, than the people that God has put in your life for you to do life with. Come on, American individual Christian, it's all about yourself. That's not the way you're intended to live. And you shortchange yourself. You sabotage your life when you don't see this. The church is a mess. You'll be offended. You'll be disappointed. You'll be let down. People won't call you. People will gossip. All these things are true. But will that be, will that be the thing that you let sabotage? Friends, it's true for all of us. And when we give in to our American individualism rather than the fact that something so beautiful and so majestic is going on here that he saves me individually and he dwells in me and he unites me to people that aren't like me. And when we're not like each other but there's something truer about us, it becomes intoxicating when the reason we're together is because I'm not with a bunch of other white middle class people but I'm with a bunch of people who I would otherwise have no other reason to be with other than Jesus. It becomes a powerful witness to an onlooking world. Now it's not, oh yeah, well that's where the, that's where all the business execs go. No, it's, man, why, is, why does that person go to that church? Why is that person in that group, person's community group? Why is that person eating lunch with that sister in the middle of the week from their church? Oh, what brought those people together? Not neighborhoods, not demographics, not school zones, not ethnicity, not music preference. Christ. I love you. <laughs> okay. Implication five. We live in an already not yet tension. No, it's been, I, you're, you're getting tired. I've been, I've been uh, just hold on with me for a couple more minutes, all right? I can feel it. I've been doing this long enough, I know. We live in an already not yet tension. I think this is what verse 10 is about. If Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, the second half of verse 10 is a little tricky in its, um, in its translation. Most of you, if you maybe have the ESV version, you're, you're, you see that the spirit and the second half of verse 10 is capitalized, which clues us in there that the translators of this version are interpreting that to mean the Holy Spirit. Some of you, it might be a lowercase s, and it might say something like, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And so there's, because of, tech, too technical for our purposes this morning, but there's some decisions to be made by translators there. Is, is the Spirit there referring to the Holy Spirit, or is the Spirit there referring to the human spirit? But either way, regardless of which decision your translation made there, I think it ultimately ends up in the same place. It's this truth that, the first part of the verse, our bodies are dead because of sin. In other words, even though we're saved, even though we're Christians, we still will have to endure the effects of sin and we, are, we will all die one day. 
we will all die. But the Spirit, whether it's the Holy Spirit or it's our spirit, and even if, if, even if your translation is, says our spirit, we know from the rest of the Bible that what's acting on our spirit is the Spirit of God. Our spirit, because of the Holy Spirit, is alive because of the righteousness that is imputed to us through Christ. And so what I think this verse is saying here is that there is this tension in the Christian life. Even though we have been made new, we still have to die. And our bodies are, to some degree, wasting away. They are aging. I know this. Believe me. You guys in your 20s know this. I'm, I'm pushing 50, and I snack, crackle, and pop every morning when I wake up. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says that our outer body is wasting away. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse, verse 16. Look what he says. He says, we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we are... Alive because of righteousness, but our bodies are still decaying. Now we're going to talk about what our bodies do in just a second here when we end. But just let me stop here and, and, and offer a few thoughts about this truth. How we live in this sort of already, we're already saved, but our bodies are still dying and they're not yet fully glorified. This should cause us, I think, this should cause us to value our bodies, but not idolize them. Okay? So for all of you, that see fit to let us know that you had your personal best, most awesome CrossFit workout this week and posted on Facebook so all of us could see. Thank you. I just on behalf of us all, thank you for that. But you're going to die. Okay. This isn't to say that we shouldn't take care of ourselves. We should. But there's this balance here, right? We should value the human body. We should take care of it. But we should not idolize it. We are awaiting a final and full redemption. And it doesn't come from kale and CrossFit. But only from Christ. Which leads us, by the way... I like to work out and I suffer through kale occasionally. <laughs> but do you see this tension, right? Life is not these 80 years. And in the age of Instagram filters, where the highest cultural idea is beauty and sexiness and fitness, we are prone to miss this. Are we not? Which leads us to the final point. If our future is certain then we can endure anything now. And I think this is what verse 11 is all about. Verse 11 is talking about the promise of the resurrection of the saints of God, Christians. If the Spirit, look at Paul's reasoning. He said in verse 9 and 10 that the Spirit dwells in us. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, so Jesus resurrected, and notice what Jesus is like after his resurrection. He's walking through walls. He's, he's, he's a glorified, he's, 
He's, He's glorified Jesus. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will, not maybe, will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Now, where does, where does Paul elaborate on this more fully? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is where Will was last week. We're going to read a little bit beyond. 1 Corinthians 15. Look at this truth. Oh, man. Verse 12. 1 Corinthians verse 15, verse 12. I'm going to read these passages. Be quick, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table and take communion together. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul is talking about the fact that even after we die and our bodies go into the ground, our spirits are with God, but there is this final consummation that is in the future whereby our spirits that instantly go to be with God upon our death will be reunited with our resurrected, glorified bodies. In other words, in heaven we won't be cupids on clouds. We will be glorified, real humans like Jesus. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So Paul is putting all of his eggs in the basket and he's saying, if this isn't true of our future, if God is not going to raise us from the grave and glorify us like he did Jesus, then Jesus didn't even raise from the grave. Talk about hedging your bets. He's saying this is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, then nothing's happened. For if the dead are not rise, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have previously died, in Christ have perished. In other words, there's nothing after that. There's no afterlife. If in Christ, listen to this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Friends, There's lots I could say about that text, but I think this tells us that the Christian life is not meant to be lived merely as pragmatic principles for these 80 years. It's not about what we can get here and now. It's about ultimately what will be ours there and then. That's why this is going to sound sort of maybe um, uh, illogical to you, but the prosperity, the air of the faith in healing prosperity gospel preachers on TBN is that they're not prosperous enough. They preach a minuscule prosperity just these 80 years. And what Paul is saying here is if, 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 if the Christian life is only meant to benefit you here, then we're to be pitied of all people. No, it's almost better there. That's the logic. And look at what he says. Let's skip down to 2 verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This flesh and blood that we read about in verse 10, this body that is dead because of sin, even though we should take care of it, even though we should glorify God on our bodies, all those things, this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die. There will be people alive 
when Jesus comes back and they will not die. And I was hoping that that would have been that night in the bathroom in India in that hotel. <laughs> like either take me Jesus or come back now. But he's saying we shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment. He's speaking about the second coming of Christ. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So if we die, our bodies go in the ground, our spirits immediately go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's clearly true. But this is speaking about a final day when the dead, our dead bodies will be raised, reunited with our spirits, and we shall finally be consummated and whole. He goes on. He says, In that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable... And the mortal puts on the immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is your future if you're a Christian. If God's Spirit dwells in you, you are in an unstoppable movement towards 1 Corinthians 15. This is true. This is, this is our hope. We'll be finally free of all sin. We'll be finally free of any errant cancer cell. We'll be finally free of anything that is disobedient to Him and we will be like Him. And so what should that produce in us? A kind of bold abandon in this life now. If I know I'm going to make it home, then I, I'm free to not be scared. And that's Paul's conclusion in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You don't have to clench onto these 80 years so tightly because that's not where your future exists. So give your life away for the gospel, is Paul's conclusion. Our future is certain, so we can endure anything. Now, praise God. We're about to come to the table where we remember what Jesus has done to make all of this possible. When we come to the table, we are, we're doing really three things. I think we're, we're examining ourselves to ensure that we're not falsely assured. We're, we're saying, Lord, I'm, I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. We're reminding ourselves that this is where our hope lies, that Christ lives in us, that the Holy Spirit indwells us, and that we will make it safely home, and that nothing that we have done has made us right with God, but only Christ and His work has made us right with God. And we're rem remembering these truths that we've just looked at today, and then we're proclaiming to a world around us that this is our hope. So if you are a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come to this table with us. In just a moment, I'm going to ask us all to stand. 
and the ushers are going to take their posts and serve us. And if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to this table and take this bread and this cup, which is a picture of the very gospel that we've been proclaiming and reveling in, that Jesus' body was torn for us and that his blood was spilled for us and that that's the only thing that makes us right with a holy God. This is a family meal. So if you're not yet a Christian, we're not trying to single you out or embarrass you in any way, but we don't want you to profess something that you don't yet believe. And so we'd love to speak to you afterwards about more about what it means to be a Christian. I think it's, hopefully it's been very clear that what it means to be a Christian is to not trust on yourself and your own righteousness, but to trust in what Jesus has done. And the only way that that can happen is if God first opens your eyes. And I pray that today God has opened your eyes. But this meal today is for believers. So if you're a believer, come to this table. Let's hold on to the elements together as we return to our seats. And then Tyler will lead us to receive them together as a faith family. Let me pray. And as I pray, let's prepare our hearts. Father, these are magnificent truths. It's stunning that the the triune God dwells in his people. The implications of this are, are so profound and so all-encompassing. Our, there's no way we could take it all in. But let us see what is sufficient for our, us this morning to see so that we can be assured. We all have this biting question, will we make it? And you want to tell your people a resounding yes. We will make it because you dwell in us. And just as you raise Jesus, you will raise us. If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or trial or nakedness or sword? No, in all these things, Lord, we are reminded that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor anything created on this earth shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You will bring your people safely home. Assure us of this today as we come around your table and remember Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.